Well, the, the theme of our passage in my sermon is evangelism. Uh, I like to talk about this quite a bit. The title is Go and Tell. The big idea, those who encounter Jesus. And we'll mention that that's what we see in John. We have all these incredible encounters. Jesus and others in their lives are typically changed. But those who encounter Jesus are called to evangelize the lost. Three things. With urgency, awe, A-W-E, and without discrimination. Uh, I want to talk about Hudson Taylor. Um, I've read on Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a British missionary to China in the mid-1800s. Probably the best biography I've read is a shorter one by John Piper, and uh, it's really helpful. If you like Christian biographies, uh, I'd encourage that one. But this is actually from a story that Hudson Taylor told, and I want to read it to you. So Hudson Taylor, again, he's a British missionary. He learned Chinese very quickly. The Lord used him very effectively in that area of the world to spread the gospel. But he told of a Chinese pastor who always instructed new converts, these are new Christians, to witness, to begin sharing Jesus as soon as possible. Okay, so you're saved now. You've trusted in Christ. We've baptized you. Go share. Go evangelize. Now, once upon meeting a young convert, the pastor, he asked this question, Brother, how long have you been saved? The man answered that he'd been saved for about three months. And most of would say, wow, that's a, that's a new believer. Three months he's been saved. And this is what the pastor asked. He says, and how many have you won to the Savior? Oh, I'm only a learner, the convert responded. Shaking his head in disapproval, the pastor said, young man, The Lord doesn't expect you to be a full-fledged preacher, but he does expect you to be a faithful witness. Tell me, the pastor went on, when does a candle begin to shine? When it's already half burned up? The man said, no, as soon as it's lit. And the pastor said, that's right. So let your light shine right away. Let your light shine right away. Well, we've been looking at this woman now for several weeks, and we've had some interruptions. I apologize for that. But this woman, let me just bring you up to speed if you're new here today. We're in John 4. A woman encounters Jesus, or maybe more accurately stated, Jesus encounters a woman. And what have we learned about this woman? What stands out about this woman? One, she's a Samaritan. And what do we know about Samaritans and Jews? Were they best friends? Would they have, if they were alive during this time, would they have friended each other on Facebook? I haven't used Facebook, but yeah, I know what it is. No, they wouldn't have. They hated each other, right? They didn't interact. So this woman, again, she's a Samaritan, and she has a reputation for being immoral. She's been with multiple men, and the man that she's with now, we learn, is not even her husband. And we see in the passage that Jesus takes the initiative like always, in this interaction. He's the first to speak, and he's the last to speak before she departs. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about the example of Jesus and evangelism. We learned that Jesus goes to hard places, and Jesus goes to hard people. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we likewise must be willing to go to hard places and to hard people to spread the gospel. Amen? Now, here in our passage, again, it's a shorter text. It's verses 27 to 30. We're going to be looking at the example now of the woman. That's right. She she gives us an example that I think we can follow. 
She encounters Jesus, and then she goes and tells others. She encounters Jesus, and then what does she do next? She goes and she tells others. And I want to point to several things that I think are noteworthy from this woman example. Is she the perfect evangelist? Of course not. But are there some things that we can take away from her example? Absolutely. And there's three things that I want to highlight from the text. Urgency, awe, A-W-E, awe, and comprehensive. Okay, Urgency, awe, and comprehensive. These are our three points this morning from the passage. Now, if you were listening as Will read the passage, and if you've been here for the past few months, if you've been following in our study in John, this whole scene with the woman is reminiscent of two earlier scenes back in John 1. Let me just read this quickly. And listen carefully. This is John 1, 35 to 45. Two other men encounter Jesus. And I want you to pay attention to what they do next, okay? This is really important. The next day, this is John 1, 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now we're in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now listen here. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip, what did he do? He found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Come and see. Okay, so these men that we just read about earlier in John's gospel, have an encounter with Jesus. And then what do they do immediately? They go and tell others, come and see. The verses that stand out in those passages, verse 41 and verses 45 to 46. Listen carefully. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon, this is Andrew, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. So after his encounter with Jesus, what does he do? He goes and finds his brother. We found the Christ. And then verses 45 to 46, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, if I'm going to summarize this language, they're saying, Guys, our dreams are coming true. The king that we've been longing for, he's here. Come and see. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I love what Philip said. What did he say? Come and see. Come on, let's go. Come and see. Again, we're going to focus this morning on the example of the Samaritan woman. And yet the things we're going to see, we've seen already with other men who have encountered Jesus in the Gospel of John. So what stands out? Again, what stands out from the Samaritan woman's example? 
of evangelism. And evangelism, what is evangelism? It be a fancy word. It means sharing the gospel with others. Amen? It's what every Christian's called to do. We're called to tell others who Christ is and what he's done and how they can be saved by turning from their sin and trusting in him as Lord and Savior of their lives. That's evangelism. What's the first thing that stands out about the woman's example? Number one, urgency. Everybody say urgency. We know what that word means. We use that word when times are serious. Things got to get done. We got to go. It's urgent. Where do we see this in our passage? Verses 27 to 28. Just then, his disciples come back. Where's Jesus? He's at the well with the woman. They've been talking, right? They marveled. The disciples marveled that he was talking with a woman. This was taboo. You don't do this, let alone a Samaritan woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? And this is the best part. So the woman left her jar. I mean, why did she come in the first place to draw water? She leaves her jar and she goes into town and she begins telling others. Okay, so the, the obvious detail, the obvious detail that stands out is the fact that the woman leaves her jar behind. She came to draw water. We see that in verse 7. She came to draw water. That was the whole reason for her being there. But then she has an encounter with who? With Jesus. And as a result, she leaves her jar behind. Her new purpose now takes priority. Her new purpose being what? Telling others about Jesus. All right, so my, my oldest son is homesick right now. Pray for Clark. Poor dude. They're in high fever this morning. A lot of kids sick right now. Clark's our firstborn. He'll be 10 in June. So when Clark was born, he didn't come on time. I don't know if you know this story. We went to the hospital, and we were living in Washington State. You know, we're just outside of Seattle. We go to the hospital. This is a, an ultrasound. They're going to take measurements, right? We're just going to make sure everything's still looking good. We're not expecting anything. We're expecting to go, get the ultrasound done, We'll see his heartbeat's great, measurements are where they should be, and then we're going to go home and hang out for another week and a half. Well, truth be told, we weren't prepared for what came next. You know, they're doing the ultrasound, and I, I see a heartbeat. I'm like, yes, good. All right, can we go? Uh, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. Y'all well, wait here for a second. We're like, what's going on? This is strange. The amniotic fluid was so low, they said, you're not leaving. We have to induce this baby now. And Haley laughs. I was like, wait, 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 what, wait, what, what? I was like, I, I, I was in shock. I said, so we're not going home? No, no, we're going, we're going home. We don't have anything. We don't have bags. Like, what are you talking about? He's not due for like another week and a half, two weeks. No, we have to induce right now. Okay, so what was our first priority in coming? We came to get measurements, maybe some pictures, send some videos back to grandparents in East Texas, right? Well, now there's a new purpose, and the new purpose is what? Get that baby out. And they did, and of course, Clark is here, and he's healthy and fine. Praise God. The woman at the well came to collect water, but she left her jar behind because of a sense of urgency. And based on what those doctors were telling us, I was like, okay, this is urgent. We got to move. <laughs> and they did, man. As soon as they told us that, things started moving. Friends came, brought us food, brought us bags of clothes. And, I mean, Clark was born several hours later. That was wild. There was a new sense of urgency. Well, again, we see that with this woman. She leaves her jar behind because there's a new sense of what? Urgency. Her physical needs. That's why she came. We need water to survive. Her physical needs suddenly paled in light of the far greater what? Spiritual need. 
a need that she had just been made aware of, a need that she wanted to now make others aware of. You know, this is the mark of a disciple of Jesus, dropping everything to follow him. Amen? I mean, you know the gospel accounts, right? This is how discipleship begins. You have an encounter with Jesus. You're made aware that you're a sinner and he's the Savior. You trust in him. You leave everything and you now follow him. He takes priority. Amen? The woman left her water jar. I mean, such a, it appears to be such an insignificant detail, but there's so much there. She left her jar behind. They could just go to Walmart and pick up another jar. This was probably handed down. But she leaves it due to a sense of urgency. Let me recall for you guys Mark 1. I love Mark. Mark 1, 16 to 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. This is Jesus. Okay, so he's passing along the sea. He sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon. They're casting a net into the sea. They're fishing, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become what? Fishers of men. And immediately. Everybody say immediately. It's urgency, right? Immediately they left their nets. It's the same Greek word that we just saw with the woman, okay? They left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boats mending the nets. And immediately Jesus called them. And what did they do? They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed Jesus. So in both passages, the same verb is used. It's the verb aphiani. I'm not going to expect you to say that again. But I'll say it one more time. Aphiani. It means to cease to stop, or to leave. It carries the idea of immediately ceasing to do something. The idea of immediately leaving everything to follow who? To follow Jesus. That is at the heart of discipleship. And of course, discipleship includes what? Evangelism. Telling others about Jesus. Just as Simon and Andrew left their fishing nets to become fishers of men, so the woman at the well leaves her jar to tell others about Jesus. You know, the the Bible makes a clear association between being a follower of Jesus and sharing Jesus with others. Sharing Jesus with others is one of the primary ways that we give evidence that we're a follower of Christ. It's true. I mean, what do Christians do? We share Jesus with others. That being said, are you, and you, and you, and you, are you currently demonstrating that you're a disciple of Jesus by sharing Jesus with others? Do you share that same sense of urgency to bring others to Christ? You know, this flows so well out of what we saw. This was two weeks ago about Jesus, right? We saw in John 4 that he is prophet, he is priest, and he is what? He's king, and therefore he alone is able to meet our greatest needs. He reveals this to the woman at the well, right? And the woman at the well had been looking to the world to meet her greatest needs. So Jesus diagnoses the problem, and then he points her to the solution, which is him. She'd been looking to the world to meet her needs, but when he he says, I'm prophet, I'm priest, I'm king, I alone can meet your greatest needs. As prophet, he speaks the word of God. Whose word do we need? We need God's word. As priest, he brings sinners to God. Who do we need to be reconciled to? God. And as king, he defeats the enemies of God and rules over the people of God. 
We need his word, we need his presence, we need his victory, and we need his rule, and so does everyone else. Amen? So does everyone else. Therefore, let us go tell everyone else about Jesus. Here's the application step. Here's the practice. Make a list of people in your relational world. Do that today. Don't do it now. Maybe write a note in your notes. But make a list of every, every person in your relational world that's lost. This could be a family member. This could be a neighbor across the street. This could be a best friend. This could be a classmate. This could be a teammate. These are people that you rub shoulders with on the daily that are lost, that right now are headed to hell. And here's what I want you to start doing. This is very simple. Start praying for them. Start praying for them. Pray for opportunities. Pray for boldness. You know, I'm, listen, I have done a lot of street evangelism. I've done park evangelism. I've knocked on doors, and there's a place for that. But if we're not sharing the gospel with those that we know, what are we doing? What are we doing? So make that list, begin praying over that list, and then begin pursuing that list. Pursue these people. Tell them about Jesus. Call them to repent and to trust in him. Now, maybe you've heard. This is, again, maybe you're like, I don't know what to do, Chris. Okay, I don't know how to begin this process. Yes, I have lost friends. Yes, I know that they are hopeless without Christ. But what do I do? It's not rocket science, okay? I'm going to make it very simple. I use this all the time. God, man, Christ, response. Start with God. I take people all the way back to Genesis where we have established that God is the creator. He's the creator of everything. He is sovereign. We owe him our allegiance. But what happens after God makes Adam and Eve in his image to know him, to have a relationship with him? What do Adam and Eve do? What does man do? Man sins. They disobey. And they're what? They're kicked out of the garden. They're evicted. Who came to save the day? Who lived the life that we could not live and who died the death that we deserve? Again, because we've sinned, we deserve punishment. Christ came from heaven, lived a perfect life, and then went to the cross to take that punishment in our place. And then he rose again, which proves that what he did worked. Amen? Amen. And then you get to the response. Okay, so you're saying, God made us. I've sinned against God. I need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. Okay, what do I do? You repent. You turn from your sin, the sin of unbelief, and you trust in Jesus. You believe that he died and he rose again to save sinners. You follow him. Why a sense of urgency? Why a sense of urgency? Why should our evangelism be urgent or time sensitive? Because the Bible places this emphasis on it. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So if you fall under the category of belief, you have eternal life. But if you haven't believed, what? Where are you headed? Eternal death. Is that urgent? John 3.36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Praise God. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. Whoa. Okay, so this is urgent. This is important. This is significant. If I believe in Jesus, I have eternal life. That starts now. But if I don't, right now, I am an object of his wrath. People's eternities are at stake. There's nothing more urgent than this. 
It's true. All right. What else stands out from the Samaritan woman's example? Awe, number two. A-W-E, awe. I love this word. Awe. Where do we see it? Verse 29. Listen to verse 29. I mean, listen to her. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She's in awe of her encounter. He knows everything about me. Could this be the one that we've been waiting for? The woman is clearly in awe of who? Of Jesus. She exclaims, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. As one scholar notes, the Samaritan woman does not merely show the effect Jesus had on her, she also proclaims it. Everyone that has a saving encounter with Jesus is awestruck. And this should be heard in how we talk about Jesus with unbelievers. He's not just some guy that can make your life better, but the king of kings who died for sinners on a cross and rose again to rescue those who were headed to hell. He's the savior of the world. He is the sovereign son of God. That's how he's described in the word. Amen? Not just some guy that can make your life better. That's not what we're talking about. You know, I'm in awe every time I read or recite to myself Romans 5, verse 1. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about that. If you've trusted in Jesus, you now have peace with God. Before that, you were at enmity with God. You were an enemy of God. You were rightfully so headed to hell. But through Jesus, you're now at peace. Through who? Through Jesus. Whoa! (laughs) You know, examples of this abound in the scriptures. We've already seen it in John, John 1.1. How is Jesus described? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Whoa! Jesus is God. John 1.9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Whoa! Are you awestruck by that? That's how the scriptures talk about Jesus. And of course, John 1.29, this is J.B., John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's, let's move beyond John. How about Colossians 1, 15 to 17? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were what? They were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He holds it all together. If he ceased to do that, even for a millisecond, we cease to be. He holds everything together by, by his power. <laughs> Can I give you one more? Let's practice being in awe of Jesus together. Hebrews 1, 3, and 4. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You know, I love superlatives. 
I love them. Walk by my house one day and say, hey, Chris, what you love? I love superlatives. <laughs> but I reserve them for Jesus. I reserve them for Jesus. What's a superlative? Sounds like something that goes on your teeth, maybe. That's not what it is. A superlative is a grammatical comparison that denotes an extreme or unsurpassed level or extent. Let me give you some examples. Jesus is the greatest. That's a superlative. He's the greatest. Again, a superlative is a grammatical construction that denotes an extreme. It denotes an extreme or unsurpassed level. Is there anyone greater than Jesus? No. What's the superlative? Jesus is the? He's the greatest. There's no one like him. Other examples are words like supreme or excellent. Let me ask you this. How does heaven speak of Jesus? How does heaven speak of the Lord? Isaiah 6.3. And one called to another and said, I mean, Isaiah is privy to the divine throne room, okay? And this is what Isaiah sees and hears. The question is this, how does heaven speak of the Lord? And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here's the question I want you to think about this morning. Does your pronouncement of Jesus line up with heaven's pronouncement? Does your pronouncement of Jesus line up with heaven's pronouncement? If you truly know Jesus, and we've been talking about this in 1 John on Wednesday nights, right? This, this word to know in the Greek is gnosko. It means to know relationally, to know him, to have an encounter with Jesus. If you know Jesus, then you'll never run out of superlatives for him. For that's what we see in the Bible, right? That's how he's described in the Bible. You know, what's sad is we have no problem speaking this way about our favorite sports teams, our favorite athletes, but none of these compare to who? None of them compare to Jesus. Here's the application step. Here's the practice. Use your Bible in your evangelism. Let me explain. But again, use your Bible in your evangelism. You know, Mark Dever, there's a couple of books I want to reference this morning that are in the book nook. The first one is this. It's a great book on evangelism. It's by Mark Dever. It's titled... The gospel and personal evangelism. And this is what he says. Referring to the clear teaching of the Bible shows our friends that we are not simply giving them our own private ideas. Rather, we are presenting them Jesus Christ in his own life and teaching. The biblical writers, the biblical writers are clearly in awe of Jesus as they proclaim him in the Holy Scriptures. Didn't we just see that in John, in Colossians, in Hebrews? They're in awe of him. Amen? They're in awe. We saw this earlier in John's Gospel with Andrew and Philip. Andrew proclaims, we have found the Messiah. And Philip declares, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Philip takes Nathaniel to the word when he declares Jesus. Here's the point. The point is this. When you share the gospel, those whom you share with, I pray because they need to hear a genuine sense of awe and reverence for Christ when you talk about him. Amen? 
when you're sharing the gospel with your lost friends, I pray because they need to hear from you a genuine sense of awe and reverence for King Jesus. They need to hear about Jesus as he's described in Scripture. He's the King of kings and the Lord of all. Amen? He's the King of kings and Lord of all. He is sovereign. He is holy. And as we recently saw in John 4, 19 to 26, he is prophet, he is priest, he is king. He is the only one that can bring undeserving sinners into a right relationship with God through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. You know, furthermore, the woman's pronouncement, if you were paying attention, this Samaritan woman, her pronouncement is also very personal. She says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. It's personal, right? I mean, Jesus knows her. Let the lost know how Jesus has transformed your life. Share your testimony. When was the last time you shared your testimony with an unbeliever? Maybe you're thinking, I don't know what that means. What are you talking about? Share your testimony. We have the privilege of hearing testimonies when we baptize. Amen? Before we put them in the water, we hear what? How Jesus has saved them. What these brothers and sisters are doing is sharing how Jesus' story, the gospel story, has intersected with their story. Learn to do this. Talk about your life before Jesus. Man, I was a mess. I was a wreck. I was lost. I was looking to the world for satisfaction. Then talk about how through hearing the gospel, you trusted in Jesus. Then, talk about how your life is now different because of trusting in Jesus. And guess what you just did? You shared your testimony. That's testimony sharing 101. Life before Christ, circumstances surrounding how you became a Christian, and now how your life is different. All right, last thing. What's the last thing we learned from the Samaritan woman's example in evangelism? Comprehensive. Let me explain verses 28 to 30. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, by comprehensive, I mean that she went to everyone. She went to everyone. She wanted all to hear about who? She wanted everyone to hear about Jesus. Now, let's take a moment to observe a comparison a clear comparison between the Samaritan woman and the disciples of Jesus. They couldn't be any more different, okay? Notice the disciples' response. They've been away, right? Jesus has this encounter with the woman at the well. They come back, and that's where we pick up. Verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? Their general mood is one of, incredulity. They're in shock. They're obviously thinking, you know, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you talking with her? You're not supposed to do that. We can assume from their response, the disciples' response, that the disciples at this point would have ignored the Samaritan woman at the well. But not who? Not Jesus. Not Jesus. And then we get to the Samaritan woman. And I love what one brother says. This is Matt Carter. He says, she didn't stop to think about who would listen to her or who she thought might respond to the gospel. She ran back into town so quickly that she left 
her water jar at the well, which again denoted what a sense of urgency. Remember, Jesus went to hard places and hard people. Amen? He went to everyone. It's easy, I think, for us, like the disciples, to judge before we go, to think, man, that person won't listen. That person won't listen. The gospel probably isn't for them. As one brother writes, the gospel doesn't discriminate, neither should we. Therefore, we must take the gospel to everyone. Again, Jesus' example is comprehensive. He goes to those that most would ignore. Again, the Samaritan woman thankfully follows his example. It appears that she tells everyone about Jesus. She goes to the whole town. So I think I told you guys, I lived in Boston for several years. And while in Boston, my first year, I got involved in the Boston Rescue Mission. This was downtown. And it was a place where for three and a half years, I got to disciple drug addicts and men who had just gotten out of prison. And I loved it. For three and a half years, I lived there for a whole summer. It was wild. But I don't want to talk about that necessarily. I want to talk about Wendy's. Who likes Wendy's? I love Wendy's. About two blocks from the rescue mission was a Wendy's. I take the train in, and before I went to the rescue mission, I did Bible study every Tuesday night. I preached there on Fridays. On Saturdays, I'd go in and disciple men. I did that for three years. But I'd stop at Wendy's because I'm hungry. And I like Wendy's. I like their burgers and their fries. And their what? Oh, those Frosties, man. Oh, let's go get one after church. I'll pay. I'm just kidding. There was a guy that I got to know at Wendy's. He always took my order. And he was engaged in a homosexual lifestyle. But I got to know this guy over time, weeks and months. I got to know his story. And the Lord gave me the sweetest opportunity one day. It was slow, and you know, we talked. I greeted him, and I went and sat where I usually sat. And I went over my notes before Bible study. So I spent about an hour there before I walked the rest of the way to the rescue mission. And he came over, and we were talking some more because it was slow. And something he said, I was like, oh, boy, here we go. Let's go. Let's get it. And I could have said, and wrongfully so, no way. He'll never listen. This is a gigantic waste of time. He's beyond saving. But thankfully, by God's grace, I didn't. And I shared with this young man the gospel. I walked him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the seriousness of his sin. And all sin, for that matter. And he listened, and we engaged. And I'm thankful. Remember, Jesus came to seek and to save the the lost. It's Luke 19.10. And everyone falls into that category without Jesus. Therefore, we must be willing to take the gospel to everyone. Here's the application step. Here's the practice. I am interested. I'm passionate about this. Look at me, please. I am interested in further developing and cultivating a culture of of evangelism here at Kelty's. And you'll notice, and I've been a part of churches where I mean, that's just the air they breathe. That, that's what they speak. That's what they talk about. So here's the key, I think. And there's another book that I want to mention. It's by J. Max Stiles. It's a red book that Nine Marks put out years ago, and it's simply titled Evangelism. But you'll notice that churches that are known for their evangelism 
are churches where evangelism is talked about, prayed about, and celebrated. One more time. Churches that are known for evangelizing the lost do three things really well. They talk about evangelism, okay? It just, it just happens. We, we just, you know, when I'm discipling men throughout the week, I'm asking them, who are you sharing the gospel with? We were praying about those guys. And then when those guys get saved, we celebrate it as a church. Amen? So if, if we want to see a culture of evangelism grow here, then we need to talk about it more, we need to pray about it more, and we need to celebrate it more. Again, when you're, when you're meeting with a brother or sister in Christ, maybe it's a Bible study or a home group or a one-on-one, begin to make this a regular line of your questioning. Who are you sharing the gospel with? Hey, let's stop and pray about that person. And when they trust in Jesus, what do you do? You celebrate. How do we do that here at Kelty's? We celebrate through baptism. Amen? So again, talk about evangelism. Pray about it. Pray for the lost. Pray for opportunities to engage the lost. And when the lost are saved, let's celebrate it with the church. You know, I love the 1-4-P challenge. I've talked about it a lot over the last two and a half years. This is a simple challenge for you, church. Find one person and commit to four Ps. You know, we, we have this on our website. You can write it down. I think it's in our handout as well in the back. But, you know, just get a bookmark. We've made these before, but just write that person's name down. This is someone from your relational world that's lost, that doesn't know Jesus. Write their name down. The first P, start praying for them. Second P, start planning how you're going to engage them and invite them to do a Bible study with you. Number three, make sure you're practicing the gospel in front of them. You're living it out. And number four, you got to what? you gotta, you got to proclaim it. Let me end with a story. Some of my favorite evangelism stories. I was telling Kobe this this week. Where's Kobe? Hey, hey, brother. So when I was in Washington State, I was a youth pastor for a number of years and oversaw a young adults ministry. And we did camp. Now, Will, maybe you've heard of this. I'd never heard of this before, right? We, in Washington, took buses. And it was a big youth group. We had like 150 kids, high school only. We had a middle school, and I oversaw both, but I was mainly the high school guy. And we would get buses, and we would drive to Lake Shasta in California, and we'd rent houseboats, and we would have 150 kids. This is insane to me to this day. And we'd get on these houseboats, and we'd make these, you know, what's the place that's like Sam's, where they keep the prices low? Costco. We'd go to Costco and make these massive food runs, and we'd pack on the food, and we'd have adult leaders, like 40, that would help, you know, watch the kids, prepare the meals, disciple the kids, and then we'd go to this island on Lake Shasta, and we'd have our own camp. It was like Lord of the Flies, but the opposite. Um, the first year we did this, when I was the youth pastor, there was this guy named Emmett Flynn. And I still talk to Emmett this day. Emmett, man, <laughs> Emmett was like an all-American boy. He was like the, the, the best athlete in high school. All the girls loved Emmett. He was a handsome guy. He was cool. He was friends with everybody. But Emmett was lost. He was lost. He did not know Jesus. He was living for the world. In fact, he loved the world. And so over that whole week of camp, we're there for six days. Oh, my, it was nuts. Just rattlesnakes. I mean, I love that kind of stuff. But I thought we were going to lose a kid every year. We never did, praise God. But I got to know Emmett, and I started praying for Emmett day one. I started spending time with Emmett, engaging him. And I watched the kids. The kids are doing the same thing. 
They're having gospel conversations. We had a lot of free time. They're having gospel conversations. But every night after service, Emmett and I would go and sit on the beach on this little island, and we would talk about Jesus. And he would ask all these questions. He's a very sharp kid. He'd ask all these questions. And the last night, and I mean, everybody there is praying for Emmett to get saved. And Emmett, the last night, just breaks down. He weeps over his sin. He realizes, by God's grace, that he has offended a holy God. And he cries out for rescue. And he looks to Jesus. And he trusts in Jesus. 18 years old, no, 17 years old, because I had one more year with him. He trusts in Jesus. He gets saved. He hates his sin. He sees that Jesus is worthy. He follows him. We get home, begin to disciple him. He gets baptized. I disciple him the whole next year. He becomes a student leader. He goes to Master's College, serves at Grace Bible Church, becomes like their main middle school helper. I'll get a text from him at least a couple of times a year. All our kids went to Master's College, by the way. I don't know why. It was close, I guess. But our church, everyone went to Master's. And he was there with several kids from our church. And they would text me and say, bro, thank you. Thank you for sharing the gospel with us. Thank you for teaching us the word. I'll tell you what. We developed that church a culture of evangelism. You know what we did? We talked about it. We prayed about it. And we celebrated it. Amen? Do you know somebody that's lost? Who do they need? They need Christ. They need Jesus. Let's go tell them. Amen? Let's go tell them. Let me pray. Father, all of us who have trusted in your son Jesus, we can identify with this story. That's our story. We were lost at one time, living for the world, looking to the world to satisfy us, much like the woman at the well. But by your grace and through your providence, we heard the gospel. We saw the problem, our sinfulness, our lostness, our inability to save ourselves. And by your grace and the work of your spirit on our hard hearts, you changed us, you gave us eyes to see you moved us to trust in Jesus and turn from sin. And by your grace, we continue to follow you today. So, Father, we thank you for saving us. Everyone in here, we, we can say that together. We thank you, Father, for saving us through your Son. As we were reminded in Romans 5.1 that we who trust in Jesus now have peace with you, God. But, Father, I pray that we would now look outward, beyond ourselves, that we would think hard about the people in our relational worlds that are lost, People like Emmett, people like John from Wendy's in downtown Boston, people like the woman at the well. And I pray, Father, that we begin praying for those lost people that you've put in our lives, whether it's a, a friend or a classmate or a family member or a neighbor across the street, a coworker, and that we begin pursuing them with the gospel. Give us boldness and opportunity. Give us favor. And, Father, I pray that through your church here at Celtics that you would save many lost people that we would see many conversions in the weeks and months ahead, and we would celebrate those through baptisms. Father, grow your church through the Great Commission. Remind us that that commission is for all of us who have trusted in Jesus, that we're all called to go and make disciples. And I pray that we do that faithfully and joyfully and always for your glory. And all God's people said, in the mighty name of Jesus.